Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? You may be seated. All right, so get a load of this. Here's Jesus, Son of God, creator of the universe, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present God, asking his disciples, so what are they saying about me? Remember when you were in junior high or high school and you really liked a girl and you absolutely would never, ever, ever under any circumstances let her know that you thought that she was pretty? Nope, not under pain of torture. Oh, what, you were all like the the jocks of high school? You had no problem with this. All right, whatever. So so what you would do was you, you had to find out what she thought about you first, am I right? Or are you just like all so old that you don't remember what it was like in junior high and high school. You went to her friends and you asked, so did she mention me? Does she like me? What does she say about me? I mean, you know, not that I like her. I mean, you know, maybe I could, you know, if uh, she wanted me to. I'm not saying that I do. I, I, I haven't really thought about it that much, but uh, what does she say about me? <laughs> right? And meanwhile, she's doing the same thing to your friends. Because it's too risky, it's too embarrassing to just walk up to the one that you like and say, hey, I think you're really cool, would you like to hang out? No, no, that didn't have, at least, you know, not for me. Maybe all of you were that person, but no. Now, this is a great conversation, and, and at its first read, you think, why is Jesus asking this question? Why is Jesus asking any questions? Has he suddenly morphed into, like, the God version of a junior high student, right? And he's like, so what are they saying about me? to truly understand what Jesus is asking here, and more importantly, why he's asking it, let's take a look at the context of the conversation. Now, by Matthew chapter 16, Jesus has been preaching for many months. His powerful teachings, his miracles are well known. Everyone is talking about Jesus. Good morning, Israel bumped the falafel recipe bit to talk about Jesus. The talk radio hosts gave up ranting about Roman politics to talk about Jesus. I remember when the movie Passion of the Christ came out, and Kirsten and I were on our honeymoon, and uh, that morning we had, you know, wandered down to the common area for breakfast, and we were talking about going to see it. And some random guy, like, overhears us talking about it, and he dives into our conversation, and he starts asking us about it and why we wanted to go and see it. And it was like that then. People were thinking about Jesus, and common people have embraced him. And the word had spread from village to village, have you heard about this man, Jesus? And most importantly, the religious leaders have heard about Jesus, and they don't like him. Why? Because Jesus is a threat to their politics and corruption. And earlier, there had been a confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees, And they had accused him of doing miracles by the power of Beelzebub, the prince of demons. In essence, they were saying, you have come straight from hell. And so you have these two camps, the Jewish religious leaders who oppose him, and then thousands upon thousands of people who surround him, who are in awe of Jesus, but they don't understand him. So then Jesus does something remarkable. He takes his disciples, and he leaves the territory of Israel. He gets out of town. Now, this is something that I understand. 
You see, whenever there's, you know, drama or confusion, there's, there's some sort of, you know, personal issues going on. People are coming at me, giving me different accounts or different stories, and there's chaos. I like to take my family out of town for a few hours, right? Get away, clear my brain, get a new perspective, and look at the issue from another angle. Does anybody kind of relate to what I'm talking about here? You know what I'm talking about? Well, Jesus takes his disciples into Gentile territory to a place called Caesarea Philippi. Now, we're going to get more into that later, but in short, this is a town with deep connections to pagan worship. It's engrossed in idolatry. And Jesus and his disciples are sitting here, and they're looking over this pagan town and its temple, and Jesus asks, who do people say that I am? And I, I can't help but wonder if he's looking, you know, at this pagan temple and thinking, do people think I'm just one of many gods? A recent survey was done of people who identified themselves as evangelical Christians, and 70% of those surveyed agreed with this statement, many religions can lead to eternal life. 57% of those evangelicals surveyed were willing, quote, to accept that theirs might not be the only path to salvation. So, It seems to me that Christians today are just as confused as the pagans of Jesus' time. But how many of you know that when Jesus asks a question, it's not because he doesn't know the answer, right? Jesus already knows the answer. He he wanted his disciples to acknowledge what other people were saying. And so they gave him four of the most popular answers about who Jesus is. Some say that you're John the Baptist. That was Herod's answer. Others say you're Elijah, which was popular because the Jewish people expected Elijah to return. And still others said you're Jeremiah, who was one of the great later prophets. And still others say you're one of the prophets, which basically means I wasn't paying attention to the flannel graphs in Sunday school, but I saw that thing that you did with the loaves and fishes, and dude, you are totally one of those guys. Now, I think that Christians, sometimes we, you know, we downplay those answers because we already know the right answer to the question. It's like, you know, when you're watching Wheel of Fortune and there's one letter left and you're yelling at the TV like the answer to the guy, but the doofus still gets it wrong. And we think, you know, these folks are two Corinthians short of a Bible. They don't know the answers. But those answers were meant to be flattering, It would be as if, you know, someone went up to Stan Cleveland in our congregation, he's a a public official, and and they say, Stan Cleveland, I think you're the next George Washington, or I think you're the next Abraham Lincoln, which would be a great compliment, even though it's wrong. So you have to give them credit for the effort, right? I mean, they were wrong on the right side of the issue. At least they get it that Jesus isn't a bad man, right? And I think it's worth noting here that, one, common people loved Jesus even though they did not fully understand him. And two, it is possible even with a sincere heart to misunderstand who Jesus is. And don't you think that this conversation could have happened today instead of 2,000 years ago? I mean, if we took a camera and a microphone and went out into the community and like to our college campus and we're asking people who was Jesus, think of the answers that you would get. He was a good guy. He was a teacher. He was a miracle worker. And you see, what was happening then is still typical today. 
There are many people who like Jesus, but they do not worship him. Maybe because they don't know the truth, or maybe because they don't believe it. And they think he's a good man, even a great man. Maybe they think he's a revolutionary or a hippie or someone who even has a special relationship with God, but they do not believe that he is the son of God from heaven. And so that's who people thought Jesus was and who they still think that he is today. But then Jesus asked the million-dollar question, verse 15. Then he asked them, but who do you say that I am? You see, now that he's made his disciples acknowledge what all the gossips are saying, he wants to draw a distinction here. Jesus leans in and he asks another question. Forget about what everyone else is saying. Who do you say that I am? And in the Greek, Jesus is giving a double emphasis here. He's saying, you, who do you say that I am? You see, I think he asked about everyone else first because they weren't with him all the time. Those people didn't live with him. They didn't, they didn't see him when he was tired or hungry or when he was thoughtful or happy, and they just didn't see all those nuances. But the disciples saw Jesus in every circumstance, and Jesus is saying here, all right, so that's what people who don't know me say, but you live with me. Who do you say that I am? And Jesus is never content with the surfacy, pat, religious answers He wants to know your true thoughts. He wants you to think about what you really believe and verbalize it. No hiding in a safe corner of the church, the truth. And he's looking into the eyeballs of men who have been with him from day one, and he wants to know, who am I for you? And this is the greatest question that we will ever answer. And I wonder if there wasn't a bit of an awkward silence here, you know, with the disciples looking at each other and thinking, what are we supposed to say here? And who's going to go first? Verse 16, Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Surprise, who jumps in? Peter, got to love Peter. Like us, he's always sticking his foot in his mouth. He's got more passion than brains. He screws up. But Peter has a good heart. And here in this moment, Peter's heart is beating in sync with the Spirit. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And each one of those in Greek hits like a title belt. The Messiah, the Son of the living God. I can just imagine the disciples here, eyes on Peter, eyes on Jesus, back to Peter, Can we just appreciate here for a second the fact that Peter is the first person to verbalize this? I mean, like Neil Armstrong, this is one giant leap for mankind. And C.S. Lewis wrote this. He said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing that we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of someone who says, I'm a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make a choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else he's a madman or something much worse. You can shut him up for a fool You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, 
or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And the biggest mistake I think sometimes we make as Christians today is only thinking of these stories in, you know, as passages of, of ancient history in the past tense, and we, we lose the big picture when we do that. Instead, this conversation is happening today, this morning, here at 2620 Calusa Highway in 2016. Jesus is asking you, okay, forget about what everyone else says. Forget about society and your boss or your family, or even aside from what the guy in the pulpit is saying to you, I want to know from you, who do you say that I am? And most of us are here today because we said what Peter did, right? A long time ago, we acknowledged that Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Jesus said, he is eternal. In John chapter 8, the people said, you aren't even 50 years old. How can you say you've seen Abraham? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. Before Abraham was even born, I am. And at that point, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus was hidden from them and left the temple. In chapter 17, Jesus prays, Now, Father, bring me into the glory we shared before the world began. Jesus placed his words as equal with God's. When he said, you've heard it said, but I say to you. When he said, you have heard the commandment which says, you must not commit adultery, but I say. Anyone who even looks at a woman and lusts after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus said, he is the only way to know God. No one truly knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. And Jesus said that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And Jesus said, so as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. That's who Jesus said he is. But now Jesus is asking you, Who do you say I am? And let me put it this way. Who does your life say that I am? For most people in our community, you are the closest thing to Jesus they're ever going to see. Who is the Jesus that you are showing them? In your life, in your decisions, in your conversations, in your relationships, what are those things saying about who Jesus is? You know, here in church, we sing that song, Jehovah Jireh. 
my provider, right? But if you can't trust him with 10% of your income, is he really your provider? We sing, Jehovah Shalom, you are my prince of peace. But if every time you have a crisis in your life, and you're running around wringing your hands and and complaining to everyone and saying, I just don't know if I'm ever going to make it, and you're staying up all night filled with worry, is he really your peace? We say our God is the God who heals, but if you won't call for prayer, you won't come to a healing communion service and ask pastor to anoint you with oil and pray, is he? What does your life say that he is? Does your life say, God is my defender, or are you running around to everyone who will listen to defend yourself? Listen, the world doesn't care who we say God is. And here's another secret, God doesn't care who we say he is as much as he cares what our lives say he is. In Matthew 15, he says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. You see, the world wants to see who you say Jesus is when everything is on fire, right? And that makes me think of a story in the book of Daniel, chapter 3. It tells the story of an egotistical king, Nebuchadnezzar, and his three Jewish slaves, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And King Neb says, I want everyone to come and look at this huge statue that I've built. No one builds like me because uh, the beauty of me is that I'm very rich. And you see, the statue of me is gold. It's tangible. It's solid. You know, it's creative. It has strong hands. I love it. And I want you all to bow down to it or you're fired, literally. Thank you. This, this is a great story, not just because of what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say here that they, they refuse, but how they refuse. They say, O oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you have set up. Most powerful words in that story. But even if he doesn't. Wow. They refuse to worship the statue because God is the only God. He will have no other gods before him. And when God asked Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who do you say that I am? They said, you are the living God above whom there is no other. You are our God, period. And their lives said that only he was worthy of worship. And to Nebuchadnezzar's face, they declared that God is able to save them from death. But even if he doesn't, even if God doesn't save them, even if he doesn't ask, act in the way that they hope that he would or that they think that he should, he is still God. He is still above all others. He is still all-powerful. 
You know, and I, and I think about great testimonies of healing that, that we've heard in our congregation, people who have been healed from, from cancer, people who've been healed from various diseases, but I, I can't help but think of John San- Sanchez, who sat in that third row there, and every Sunday, he would come in here dressed to the nines with a big, bright smile on his face, and he would say, God is my healer, even though there was a life-threatening tumor in his body, every Sunday, sitting right there, God is my healer. God is my healer. And that tumor took his body. But that tumor could not take the fire and the passion and the stand that he made by acknowledging that God is my healer. But if not, Jesus is still my healer, and Jesus is the healer of John Sanchez. Now here we are on Palm Sunday and we see another contrast. On Palm Sunday, people line the streets of Jerusalem. They're welcoming Jesus into it as their king, their savior sent by God. And they're saying, praise God, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hail to the king of Israel. And can you imagine the reaction of the disciples while they're, they're seeing this? They're smiling, they're slapping each other on the back, right? They're saying, we are totally getting supreme court positions. No more nets, no more hooks, no more fish guts. We are working with the king. And they had visions of throwing away the Roman oppressors and installing Jesus in the palace. And there would be glory and there would be victory and there would be punishment for the enemies. And five days later, Jesus is arrested. And Peter, who had boldly boldly proclaimed Jesus as the son of God, now says, I never knew him. And before we condemn Peter, can we just take an honest look here at ourselves? How easy is it to declare God, who God is, when he is doing stuff for us, right? When he comes in and provides us with a job, or when he heals us, or when he just intervenes in our life in some way. But what about when God doesn't act in the way that you think he's going to, or that you think that he should? Who are our lives saying that he is then? Do we say like Peter, I never knew him? When we stop trusting in Christ, when we start responding to situations in fear and we start making decisions based on fear rather than our faith, or when we start compromising our standards and our principles because we can't see how he's really going to come through now, then we're really saying, I never knew you, Jesus. I never really knew you, as my healer or my provider, as my comforter, as my forgiver. I never knew you. But when we respond like Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, my God is able to save for me. He is able to provide for me. He is able to bless me with a godly spouse. He is able to heal me. He is able to provide me with a job. But even if he doesn't, I will still never bow to fear. I will never compromise. I will never put my wants or my dreams or my desires or other people before God. It doesn't matter what the circumstances say. And God, he may let the circumstances get really bad. Jesus was condemned to a crucifixion. Jesus was beaten and whipped until he was disfigured. It was game over, and Jesus was a laughingstock 
And everyone that you ever knew who was serving him now is nowhere to be seen. And people are looking down at you for following Jesus. They say that you're a fool. They say that you're delusional. They say you're hopeless. And you look up and you see Jesus on a cross saying, it is finished. And you think, man, I'm the one who's finished. And it was a bad day. Have you ever had a really, really bad day? I have. And you gather with your family or what few friends you may have and you pray and you question and you wonder, but you say with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but if not. So yeah, Peter doubted. He denied Jesus. He failed. He was wondering if he had really gotten it right. If Jesus really was the Son of God, why was this happening? And I wonder what Jerusalem was thinking about the disciples after Jesus' very public, very humiliating death. Suddenly, these guys who were all smiles, right? Five days later, they're gone. They're vanished. And when Jesus isn't answering your prayers like you want them answered, where are you? Have you vanished? Have you isolated yourself? Have you stopped attending services? Have you dropped your commitments and cut ties with friends? How you respond in times of crisis is the most revealing thing about who you really say Jesus is. Can I get an amen this morning? It's easy to proclaim him when he's multiplying your blessings and reconciling your relationships and healing you. What are you saying about him when the crisis hits? But listen, communicating who Jesus is in your life, it's only half the story. Back to the original text, Jesus is asking the disciples who they say he is. And two miracles take place. A revelation from the Holy Spirit about Jesus' identity. Verse 17, Jesus replies, You are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. So after Peter speaks in faith, Jesus confirms what the Holy Spirit had revealed to him. And then after this massive revelation about Jesus comes the next big one. Jesus gives Peter a revelation of who he is. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means the rock, and upon this rock, I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven, and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. The Holy Spirit first gave Peter a revelation of who Jesus really is, and then Jesus gave Peter a revelation of who he was. Peter's dad named him Simon. God hears. And Simon was the name that he had grown up with all through his childhood into his adulthood. Simon, pick your socks up. Simon, go clean your room. Simon, stop hitting your sister. Simon, you're not going to leave the table until you're finished with dinner. Simon, go fix the fishing nets. Simon, will you take over the family business, right? But Jesus had another name for Simon. 
a name that he would be known around the world by for the next 2,000 years. Long before Dwayne Johnson called himself this, Jesus turns to Simon and he says, you are the rock. And now we can start to see why Jesus took this field trip out here to the pagan town. You see, Caesarea Philippi was a town that was built on top of this huge rock outcropping, about 100 feet high. And in this outcropping of rock was a cave from which sprang a river which flowed and fed into the Jordan. And that cave became the site of some really, really nasty and strange pagan ritual worship of the god Pan, depicted as a man with horns and goat legs and hooves instead of feet. Pan was the pagan god of shepherds. He was a fertility god of lust and terror, because lust and fear kind of go together, don't they? I'm afraid I hooked up with the wrong person last night. I'm afraid I might have an STD. I'm afraid that I might get pregnant, and now what? Right? Pan is the root word of panic or sudden terror, and that cave held a bottomless pool considered to be a gateway into Hades. And Jesus said to Simon, I am renaming you the rock. And do you see here how the enemy has built up this town and this freaky pagan temple to lust and fear? Well, your confession will be the rock upon which I build my church. Springs of living water will flow from where I, the good shepherd, am worshipped. And my temple will be a place where perfect love casts out all fear. My people will storm the gates of hell, and they will win. Praise the Lord. And Jesus gave Peter a visual representation to illustrate the revelation that he was giving to him, just like he did with Abraham in the Old Testament when he said, look up at the night sky, count the stars if you can, because your descendants will be as vast and numberless. And here is the hidden treasure of this passage. You will only truly know who you are when you truly know who Jesus is. Jesus said, if your first concern is to look after yourself, you'll never find yourself. But if you forget about yourself and look to me, you'll find both yourself and me. And he said it this way in Matthew chapter 7, anyone who listens to my teachings and follows it is wise, like a person who builds a house on solid rock, and though the rain comes in torrents, and the floodwaters rise, and the winds beat against that house, it won't collapse, because it is built on bedrock. But anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey it is foolish like a person who builds their house on sand. And when the rains and the floods come and the winds beat against that house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. How often have we based our self-worth on someone or something else other than what Jesus says? We put our identity in our jobs or our kids or our bank account or our gene size or our health, but what happens when we lose that job? What happens when our kids move out? What happens when we gain weight or we get sick and we can't do the things that we used to? 
Have you ever struggled with the question, what do I do now? Who am I now? You see, here comes the trick of Satan, right? He wants you to look for your identity, your purpose in anything but Jesus. He wants you to search for your identity in things that are always changing and shifting sand, like relationships or a career or admiration or acceptance. And at first, things are going well, and you're thinking, hey, God is blessing. But then the storms come, and there's a collapse. And you find out that you had been building your house on sand and not the rock. And none of us are immune to this truth. God wants to tell you who you are. He wants to show you your true identity And when you turn to Jesus and you ask him, who do you say that I am? He will show you the cross. He will show you the scars where he was crucified for your sins. And he will show you that his love is like no other and that you don't need others to tell you who you are. In the last book of the Bible, Jesus says that to everyone who overcomes, he will give a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Jesus has a name for you, a revelation for your life, and he will tell you who you are. But first, you must tell him. Who is he to you? This morning, I'd like for us all to stand and in reverence of God's presence in this place, let's bow our heads and close our eyes.